0: Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com slash aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. SeaburySecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at
1: airlinesconfidential.com. Hello,
2: this is Ben Baldanza.
1: Please take your seats. Airlines Confidential is ready for takeoff.
2: And this is Chris Chimes. Welcome to another week's show. After a quick go around of this week's news, we're going to chat with Creighton Scarpone, the director of airline and business aviation sales at Garmin. And Ben, we're going to start with more earnings news. As we record this, we now have results from American, United, and Alaska, in addition to the Delta results we talked about last week. What are your thoughts? Lots of interesting
1: things in these announcements, and as we predicted last week on the show, Chris, I think the themes that started with Delta largely did get parroted by American United and, to a little lesser extent, Alaska. So, let's talk about those. Both of them, American and United talked about continuing to be lighter on capacity going into the fall than they had originally planned and versus 2019, but also predicting unit revenue above 2019 and absolute revenue above 2019 on reduced capacity. Obviously, what makes that happen is significantly higher fares that consumers are paying, and both of them sort of defined the world that way. They both made money. They both talked about reduced capacity in the fall, but higher revenue than 2019, American talked about trimming capacity largely because of staffing and other things like we've been talking about this on the show forever. United was more thoughtful, I thought, in terms of Scott Kirby, their CEO, talked about dark clouds that United is seeing, both in terms of labor supply, in terms of business demand recovery and um, in terms of overall supply chain and things like that. And I thought that was kind of interesting. But the main themes of business traffic somewhat stuck at 75 to 80% of 2019 volume, even though revenue looks good. So again, that's on higher fares. So the big question is, is that sustainable? Going to Alaska, they also made some money. The biggest thing I thought they talked about, in addition to sort of operational things and their own view on staffing and such, was a big push to once again become an all Boeing airline, basically getting rid of the last tranche of Airbus planes that they acquired when they bought Virgin America years ago. And when Ben Miniucci spoke and went on TV and talked about it, he made a big point of saying the simplification that would be and how good that would be for the company's strategy to finally be done with this fleet of Airbus planes that was smaller than Boeing at Alaska when they bought Virgin but has been getting smaller and now he talked about completely getting rid of those and becoming an all Boeing fleet so very interesting things in these earnings releases I think I'm eager to see the releases from the rest of the industry over the next week and a half. We get into more of the low-cost carriers and Southwest, of course, and such. And so whether the themes that we hear from that group are different than we've been hearing from the big guys will be interesting.
2: How did you take these three releases, Chris? Well, certainly uh, you gave an excellent summation like I would expect you to, Ben. You know, I saw a couple of little nuggets uh, that you touched upon. I mean, and we're going to obviously watch this with the low-cost carriers coming up. But cost pressures were f- kind of front and center, like we heard about with Delta. It was nice to see Robert Isom be able to kind of come out of the blocks real strong with his first quarterly earnings and some positive results and kind of setting the tone moving forward. So that was, that was good to see. But it seemed like all three carriers were really trying to manage some of the more bullish expectations that they were talking about, you know, six months ago with regard to the return of business travel taking longer. I think United, you know, Scott Kirby said something about up to three years, or maybe it was Robert Isom, we should expect it's going to take probably three years to return to, quote, normal, like what we saw in 2019 kind of pointing to specifically the return of regional air service and kind of calling out the pilot shortages and the staffing shortages. So they're trying to be very much realistic and, like I said, manage those expectations where, you know, I think you and I were a little critical of their over-enthusiasm six months or so ago. Um, I think they're trying to set the right tone. I think that's right. You know, I worked with Robert
1: very early in his career when he first joined the industry at Northwest Airlines. And even then, he was a very optimistic, thoughtful guy. And it was actually great to see him on TV, smiling, talking positively, and in positive tones, even when talking about the challenges facing the industry. I hope he proves out to be a really good leader for
2: American. Yep, absolutely. And then the Farnborough Air Show just wrapped. Both Boeing and Airbus notched some orders for their narrow bodies. Airbus picked up an EasyJet order for the Airbus 320neo. Boeing seemed to win the talent competition of this aircraft order beauty contest, picking up more orders. I think I counted 167 firm orders for the Max and five wide-body 787 Dreamliner orders. The big prize being Chase Ben, was an expected very large order from Air India that didn't materialize, uh, but their new owners, the Tata Group, uh, must be some pretty tough negotiators. Still no deals and no announcements, and there were reports that both Boeing and Airbus execs were shuttling down to India for more one-on-one sales pitches. But give us the Farnborough headline according to WBEN Airline News Channel. <laughs> well, you know,
1: we, I've been watching the Farnborough results. And what has surprised me most is how relatively quiet it has been. Yes, there have been the orders you just talked about, you know, and probably a very nice return to the stage for Boeing with good orders especially the big delta order for the 737 Max and even putting 5787s seven, on the order book but the relative um, minority of big orders i would think a couple years after the pandemic first hit Most of the restructurings done, every airline rethinking their fleet and what it means to become more sustainable long term and everything. I would think that this air show might have been a big one for big sales, many more narrow bodies, many more wide bodies, not just from the traditional airlines that are already flying that equipment, um, it says to me the world still isn't quite ready to come back yet. And I would say the biggest story then is sort of the reemergence of Boeing as a real competitor, the 737 MAX, once again, a real competitor to the A320. And they established that kind of nicely. But if they end the show, if the show ends and only five wide bodies were bought, that will be a big story. I'm not sure if it'll end that way. As far as India goes, when the Tata Group bought Air India and took the company private, the Tata Group also had strong ownership stakes in two other Indian carriers. One is called Vistara, and Vistara is a business oriented kind of premium narrow body airline within India. And the other is the Air Asia India operation. While it was started by the Air Asia group in Malaysia and Tony Fernandez They have since sort of sold down their positions there, and the Tata Group owns a big chunk of that. So when you think of the Tatas in India and the planes they might need, it's not only for Air India, but it's for Vistara and where that airline's going and what, if anything, is the long-term role of the Air Asia brand within India. So it's very, very interesting. You said that the Tata Group must be tough negotiators. You're probably right about that. But I also think the Air India fleet problem is just so big. They have lots of big airplanes that are very old, So managing, replacing that fleet is going to be a lot of dollars. It's going to be a lot of support on pilot training, on maintenance, on engine deals. My guess is that the deal that the Tata Group needs to do to manage all of their Indian assets is a very complex deal, And my guess is that just takes time, too, which is probably why the deal hasn't happened yet. Now, as we're recording this, Farnborough isn't over yet. So it's possible that before the end of the show, they do have an LOI on some big deal. That would probably include many more wide bodies than the 5787s, Boeing has already said. But I'm sure Airbus is trying to stay right behind them in terms of trips to India as well. A real
2: good one to watch there, Chris. Well, since you opened the door, I'm going to go through it a little bit more. More um, Okay. It, it, it seems like Airbus kind of skipped the whole thing. I mean, they had a few orders, but it, it, it just seemed like there wasn't, like you said, a lot of energy and a lot of big news coming out of this. I saw another headline about a Boeing executive calling the show a morale booster, which, you know, look, the Boeing folks need some boosting of their morale after a tough years but like that's a lot of money to spend on a big air show to have a morale booster i think you know you're, you're looking at like more business and financial boost than morale boost but you know i'll, I'll give them that it was like the hottest week in the uk and like 500 years of temperature taking <laughs> or something so maybe the maybe the order books melted i, I don't know but it, it was just a very like you said a very quiet show a fair amount of chatter about supply chain And everyone acknowledging that was an issue. And also, I think in the context of the heat wave in that setting for the meeting, it seemed like the press was like looking more for some news and progress on zero carbon and other kind of sustainability issues, which were promoted as part of the theme of the meeting. But again, in the management expectation column, I'm not sure people made the news that at least the news media was expecting good ads
1: chris there and one name that i bet is it farmborough is aerodata because if you're in the transport business you need to know that name for three decades aerodata which is a Garmin company, has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operation.
2: And this week's show is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing the industry today. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit Sidley.com aviation for more information. Ben, uh, final question. As I think we've talked about before, one of the Chimes rules of PR is never going back to the scene of the crime, but I can't help but revisit the topic of the meltdown at Europe's airports this summer. And I'm not talking about the weather, which has been a meltdown of its own. So now Heathrow has imposed passenger caps, but their problems persist. Amsterdam had imposed caps last month, but that has done nothing to solve the problem. It seems like they've gone from chaos to pandemonium in Amsterdam. KLM simply threw up their hands and said last week, no check bags allowed for many flights. Uh, Airline executives are blaming airport officials and vice versa. And now as we head into August, I fear that more workers and execs are just going to disappear as most of Europe goes on their end of summer holidays. What's going on?
1: Good return to the crime, Chris. I'm glad you violated your rule on this one. It's amazing that this story just does not end in Europe. The caps always struck me as crazy that an airport would try to control on its own the amount of traffic coming in. Airports make money with the more people they have there. They make money on the concessions from people filling the terminals, from airlines landing, using facilities there. So for them to say we're going to cap our flights tells you they really didn't have any other answer. And part of it is staffing. We talk about a pilot shortage, maybe worldwide, but it's not only pilots. It's air traffic controllers, it's ramp workers, it's airport workers, and it's really hitting these air airports in in Europe. I don't know how they're going to get out of this, but part of what we heard in American United and Delta's earnings were keeping capacity lighter in the fall. And I bet some of that capacity is transatlantic Europe capacity because they know they're going to have to be careful about how much they push. Now, to the extent... Heathrow and Amsterdam especially work as connecting hubs rather than people just going to visit those two very nice cities This really creates an opportunity, I think, for the Middle East carriers who may have problems of their own, but many of the places that people would naturally connect at Heathrow or in Amsterdam to go to, you could also get to through Frankfurt on the Star Alliance or through Dubai or Abu Dhabi or Doha. And so it's possible that competing hubs... If they're not in as tough a position as Heathrow and Amsterdam are right now, maybe pick up some permanent share on the connecting traffic. And so what these big airports have had to do in the short term may end up hurting them longer term.
2: Well, I hope I'm wrong, but I hope I don't see or hear about any execs at BA or KLM or airport Mm -hmm. officials Lounging on the beaches of Greece or dining al fresco in southern Italy or whatever else over the next six weeks. I hope they stay home and help manage the situation. If they have to go out and sling bags, I hope they do that too. But I have a feeling I'm going to be proven wrong here.
1: Well, as you tell your kids, Chris, and as I tell my son, you can't go anywhere in the world without being recorded by someone or some camera right so any of them who do what you just said you know they're going to get lambasted for that so i hope you're right that they don't actually do that because we know for sure we'll see them doing that if they do
2: that's right well we'll be right back with our conversation with creighton scarpone with Garmin technologies but first our thanks to seabury securities a seabury capital group company and a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government explore their global reach and scale at seaberrysecurities.com
0: this portion of airlines confidential is sponsored in part by sidley austin from the ramp to the boardroom the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies
1: Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. Regular listeners know that we recently added AeroData by Garmin as a new sponsor. And today we're very excited to have Creighton Scarpone from Garmin on the show to talk about AeroData and everything that Garmin is doing to support airlines. So welcome to the show, Creighton. Hey, I appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here today. Regular listeners to the show also know that the first question we ask every guest is to introduce themselves. So tell us about your aviation background and how you got into this exciting role at Garmin.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So Creighton Scarpone, I lead uh, Garmin's commercial airline pursuits, as well as our aftermarket business aviation pursuits. That does include responsibility for aero data and our sales pursuits with that subsidiary. I've been with Garmin for about 10 years now, actually my 10th anniversary is coming up here in January. Prior to that I had a finance background, but I've been flying, believe it or not. First lesson was when I was 12 years old. So I've had the aviation bug for a very long time. Just shy of 3000 hours total time, type rated in the citation CJ family of aircraft that I get to fly uh, here at work uh, for Garmin for transportation purposes as well as access occasionally personally to a, to a citation as well. So have a broad range of, of aviation background. Got the bug by taking an airplane ride with my grandfather. He won it in a golf outing, believe it or not, when I was about three years old. And have wanted nothing else than to be in aviation since. Took a bit of a detour into finance, but found my way back to aviation with Garmin. Have had various roles within sales and engineering at Garmin leading up to where I'm at today with, again, commercial responsibility for airline and business
0: aviation.
2: So Creighton, most consumers know the Garmin name from your suite of products, navigation and fit watches and other kinds of things, obviously. But tell us a little bit more about your suite of products in the aviation space. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, first and foremost, Garmin actually has
3: five verticals within our company. So there's aviation, which I think we're all familiar with. But we have a marine segment, we have an outdoor segment, a fitness segment, and then an automotive segment. So those other four are what we call our consumer business. And then aviation is kind of a company within the company because it's so different, if you will, from the consumer space. So the easy way to think of it is we have everything from an integrated flight deck. And when I say integrated flight deck, that is all systems of the airplane. It is PFD, MFD, auto throttle systems, weather radar. AFCS or autopilot systems, all of that can be a Garmin-produced product, all the way down to an aviation-specific watch on your wrist that's got a global navigation database in it. So it really is a very broad range, uh, very broad product line that we've got, and we really have multiple solutions in all of those segments. So again, really successful, I'd say, from the mid-size, super mid-size business jet, all the way down to home-built aircraft, experimental aircraft, and our portable products and wearable products like the watch that I was mentioning.
1: Well, Creighton, who are your biggest competitors in this space, and how do you win compared to them?
3: Boy, oh boy, that's a really, a really good question. I would say our competitors are just as broad as our product line is. And again, that's because we serve markets all the way from a watch where we'll compete with Samsung, Apple, all the way up through an integrated flight deck where we'll compete with Raytheon and Honeywell. In between there, you've got folks like Dynon, Avidyne, some of the general aviation competitors that you'll see there. But again, it's a very broad range depending on on the platform that we're competing on that day. You know, in terms of success, I'll be very honest with you, Garmin came to be because of our focus on the customer. Our founders, Gary Burrell and and Min Cao. They were ex-Allied Signal, which is now part of the Honeywell brand, Uh, but Bendix King, Allied Signal, Honeywell. They came to the company and they had a vision for GPS. And at that time, Loran was, quote unquote, the future of aviation. But they had a vision for GPS, not only GPS and aviation, but GPS being widely available to consumers. And one thing that was readily available for the taking was the general aviation market. And that's really where Garmin got its start, was in general aviation there was not a lot of product development going on in that segment there was not a lot of, of focus on the customer and the customer needs and customer wants and we've truly made that a core part of our uh, of our culture is a servant attitude, a servant approach to how we can best serve our customers And truthfully that has been you know the most beneficial to us you know our current leader of our segment Phil Straub, you know he, will oftentimes say when we're in discussions with either a new customer, or existing customer, that once we have a contract, we never want to have to reference that contract again because we've got such a good working relationship. And so that's really led to our success. It's been, uh, I would say, the not-so-secret recipe of Garmin success, but uh, something we're very proud of.
2: So we read the promos every week on the AeroData products. Give us a little more flavor about the suite of products and how that's opening up new opportunities for you. Yeah, I'll come at it maybe from
3: the Garmin perspective. So Garmin, if you look at our our presence, it's, it's very strong in business aviation, very strong in general aviation. And there were certain things that we wanted to be able to do with our presence in the flight deck that required us to have a deeper understanding of aircraft performance. And that could be From weight and balance, load planning, all the way to obstacle departure procedures, you you, you name it. But it was a specialty that we wanted access to, a a technology that we we wanted access to. And it was something that we felt would be better suited as an acquisition versus trying to do it internally. Because believe it or not, there is a lot of secret sauce that goes on in, in aircraft performance. So we went out in search of a company that would fit us culturally. That would fit us, you know, with like-minded folks that, that had the same, I'll say, you know, passionate drive to, to do something more, to, to really push the bounds of aircraft performance. And we found that in Terry McDonough at AeroData. Terry is the founder of AeroData. They're actually celebrating their 30th anniversary here, August 1st. And finding he and the team down there was just the perfect fit. Again, culturally, the way they think, the way they serve their customers, everything about it was was phenomenal. So we're looking at bringing their capabilities downstream from them, you know, they're very airline focused, but downstream from them into business aviation and integrated into our flight decks. But then if you look upstream and the opportunities that Garmin has beyond business aviation into commercial, that's really where we're starting to leverage our partnership with AeroData. And so whether it be load planning, whether it be, again, just global obstacle database, all of those things are very complementary to Garmin's existing product line.
1: Very exciting that you and AeroData have come together. How long ago was this? And Was this really integral to your idea of how to grow Garmin in a space you thought you needed to compete in, but weren't quite ready to compete in?
3: Absolutely. Well, we announced publicly the acquisition of AeroData in the spring of 2021. Being fully transparent, the the acquisition had closed sometime before that. But in light of the COVID pandemic and some other factors, it was something that we elected not to make public until the spring of 2021. The interesting thing about that acquisition is, you know, again, looking back at Garmin's acquisition and and the fit, we were very excited and the team at Aerodata was equally excited about bringing their capabilities to the flight deck as anything else. So we were really focused on the roadmap that we wanted to execute and that we are executing to on our flight deck and on our aviation products using their aircraft performance. But separately, and I would say perhaps more importantly, the relationship with AeroData and just about all of the airlines in North America, at least, not to mention the global presence that they maintain, has really helped us with even some additional success uh, with Garmin products. Now, they're not OEM line fit products that I'm talking about specifically, but even things like uh, USB chargers in the cockpit, we've done that with several North American based airlines, standby flight display replacement, things like that. And those were all opportunities that candidly were opened up from our aerodata relationships at the airlines.
1: We'll have more with Creighton in just a moment. This week's show is brought to you in part by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. To help the industry achieve net zero air transport carbon emissions by 2050, Pratt & Whitney is powering more sustainable aviation through smarter technology, cleaner fuels, and greener business. Learn more at PrattWhitney.com. Slash sustainability.
2: So, I don't want to ask you to give away kind of competitive strategies or anything, but where geographically is your footprint kind of globally, or is there a focus on any particular international markets versus the US as you look to grow? Yeah, so, Garmin
3: obviously is a global company. We have a global presence. I can't recall the exact number of, of countries that we're, we actually have brick and mortar in, but I believe it's 50 plus. Aerodata, obviously strongest in the Americas. So North and South America are the bread and butter for them. But we do have significant presence in Europe and an expanding presence in in Asia with them as well. So I would say even uh, Garmin's core aviation business is strongest in the Americas, followed up by Europe and then the APAC region.
1: Well, good data are key to running any company. What are airlines, especially commercial airlines, not just business aviation, missing if they don't talk to you, Creighton, and if they're not using products like yours or maybe ones your competitors might offer?
3: Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think the unique difference for us, you know, if you look at... Boeing offers an onboard performance tool. Airbus offers their product for their platforms. But where we're truly unique is we integrate with everyone. And that's really been Aerodata's philosophy from the beginning. So it doesn't matter what you're using as a flight planning system. doesn't matter what you're using as a passenger reservation or baggage management system or a load planning system. Aerodata will integrate with all of those. So it's especially important if you've got a mixed fleet type. So if you're flying CRJs and ERJs, or if you're flying Boeing and Airbus, you know we are kind of the, the common denominator that can bring all of that together and give you one solution for load planning or performance calculations. And that truly has been a differentiator for us, just the level of integration and the number of integrations we have across the industry.
2: So Creighton, as you grow in the aviation space, is there anything you're learning that provide some application to the rest of the Garmin business or vice versa? Are there some things that you're you're bringing as far as knowledge from the broader Garmin business that's helping you excel in aviation?
3: Yeah, I would say that we are always learning from each other. You know, I've been on out to see several customers here recently, and it's not even, you know, isolated into, you know, performance per se or even a flight deck or a piece of hardware. But, you know, so much is garnered from, you know, companies and and changes they're making within their training department or changes that they're making uh, with threat-based briefings for approaches. Or, I mean, there's just so much that we're always learning that if you're not doing it on a day-to-day basis, perhaps can escape you. But, you know, just in conversations with folks that, you know, you can say, hey, you know, that would be a great feature to add to, an application, or that would be a great feature that we could add to simplify workload in a certain phase of flight, to our flight decks or to our, our aftermarket products. So there's a ton of cross pollination that happens just in being out and talking to industry. And again, that that can be the airline industry, that can be business aviation. You know, for me in, on the on the business aviation side, it's funny we would never think of leaving the gate, so to speak without numbers. I know I've got speeds posted. I know exactly what the airplane weighs. I know everything about it before we ever release a parking brake. So the notion, you know, me with, with no airline experience prior to aerodata of somebody pushing from the gate without final numbers, that kills me, but it's just a different flow. It's a different way of doing it. And so as we bring our avionics into into the airline space, we've got this knowledge of airline pilots, airline dispatchers, performance engineers that can help us make our products better so that when they do serve in the airline space, they're optimized for that application.
1: Well, let's talk about a much broader issue for a minute, Creighton. As you know well, the country's been talking about a next generation air traffic control system, which would be really important to reduce congestion in big cities maybe keep airplanes closer together while staying safe, more direct routings and things like that. Garmin, it seems to me, with its very strong expertise in GPS navigation, could be a critical player in helping to design a system like this. Do you see Garmin helping the government move forward with a new air traffic control system?
3: I would say uh, just... Disclosing what I can, you know, Garmin is integrally involved in the various committees, working groups, and uh, policy-making committees for the technical standards that would ultimately lead up to technology like that. You know, the interesting thing is that for a long time in route CPDLC, well, it, you know, if you look at oceanic fan CPDLC, that was kind of commonplace for oceanic flying but was not necessarily always used or used at all domestically. We've been on the forefront of that at Garmin with CPDLC and a product that you know we've made available that is access to that network for aircraft that weren't typically equipped or weren't typically part of the CPDLC environment. So we've been spoiled. Kansas City Center was one of the first to, to bring FAA Datacom online. And so our airplanes have been flying around, our, our corporate fleet has been flying around with that uh, for some time, but we're certainly looking forward to the day that that system is, is online nationally uh, across all in route centers. But I think that we will, we do, and we will continue to play a role in making sure that our equipment provides the best opportunity for either the crew or the individual operator to operate in the national airspace system.
2: So, Creighton, I'm going to let you close out this conversation with a little little brag in here. What's the feedback from pilots about the Garmin and AeroData products? What are you hearing that they like about interacting with that technology? Yeah, well, a lot of different ways I could go here. I'll go two
3: different ways. There was a quote, and I can't recall who said it to properly attribute the quote but we were, Garmin and and specifically our integrated flight deck was really called the iPhone of avionics, right? And if you think about an iPhone, you can pick it up, you know how to use it, you can interact with it. The iconology, the the human-machine interface is simplified to a point that you don't have to be uh, weeks and weeks and weeks of training just to use the avionics themselves. So from one aspect, we've tried to simplify the the interface to our avionics and again if you look at our core market and and where we're very successful it's even single pilot operation right and so a lot of our features and functions are focused around really enabling a single pilot or to that extent a crew but a single pilot to be successful in the national airspace system to operate safely to make their job as easy as possible in operating the aircraft right and and allowing them to focus on other things other than interacting with the avionics The second side of it is if you look at the shortage of pilots today that we're facing and you look at our success again in in general aviation, the vast majority of pilots are learning on Garmin. And so we've created, you know, this pool of pilots and it's a huge pool of pilots. Every pilot that's entering the workforce right now is learning Garmin, has kind of been quote unquote Garminized And so when you've got that, it is a stark difference from what they're flying today at the airlines. And so I wish I could say we planned it this way, but it's leading to an incredible amount of demand to bring our avionics up into the airline market because that's what pilots know, that's what they understand. And and quite honestly, most of, or all of their experience has been on a Garmin flight deck. And so that leap to uh, another product is much larger than it ever was in the past.
2: Well, that's a great way to end that uh, Garmin is helping solve the pilot shortage. So, uh, <laughs> so so in any event, you've been very generous with your time. And of course, the company's been generous with their support for the podcast. So we appreciate both those things. And uh, thank you again for joining us. Absolutely, guys. It was a pleasure. Anytime. And thank you for your sponsorship of the show too,
1: Creighton. We're excited to help you grow your business while you grow ours. Great. Thanks, guys. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential.
0: Promotional consideration by the archive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. The archive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company.
2: Well, thanks again to Creighton Scarpone for that discussion. Now we'll quickly take a couple of our listener questions. Please keep them coming via our mailbox at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts.
1: Chris, our first question is from Victoria in Denver. I really enjoyed your interview with Nina Johnson and your discussion about women in airline leadership roles. Have you noticed any similarities in the career paths of women, especially successful in the industry? Or do you have any career advice for young women who aspire to airline leadership roles? Love the podcast and thank you.
2: Uh, Well, thank you, Victoria. Ben, I feel like... You know, a couple of middle-aged white guys giving advice about how women can progress. You know, uh, we're speaking somewhat out of school, but these are based on observations. Um, but it's a very good question, Victoria. You know, traditionally, women came into airlines in some of the more traditional female-oriented roles. Like, you know, they came up through in-flight. Uh, we saw a lot of senior executives come up through reservations and marketing and maybe HR, customer service kinds of things. But that's changed a lot. And I think the women who are getting ahead are also willing to take risks and get out of their comfort zone. And when somebody shows some confidence in their ability and says, I want you to go do something over here, they're grabbing that chance because that is going to build out their experience and the like. I think one example I'd give is Maya Liebman, the CIO at American Airlines, who is a terrific executive very well, well regarded. You know, her background was in revenue management and then in the loyalty space managing the advantage program. Not she's not necessarily a techie, but she's smart, she's a very good executive. There's an example where, you know, as the chief information officer, you don't have to know how to code, maybe Maya does, I don't know, but you don't have to be a techie to manage the technology platform. And the services of the company you have to understand the business you have to make good decisions you have to ask good questions and be a good leader and maya is seen as a technology leader even though that wasn't her strength initially but she has you know done amazing things at american and and the industry is peppered with lots of women like that who step out of their area of expertise and really take on bigger kinds of things. You see that with lawyers who move into run corporate real estate or run HR or whatever it might be. So I just encourage encourage you, Victoria, to think about, you know, what you're good at and what you want to be good at. And again, be willing to take on those challenges even on a project basis or an assignment, because that exposes you to more executives and also builds out your portfolio.
1: That's great advice, Chris. And Victoria, I'll add to this, which is any man who's married, or I should say most men who are married, recognize relatively early in their marriage just how competent, how goal-driven, how well-prioritized, and how practical women can be. So to not want more women in leadership roles, not have... We need more women pilots, we need more women lawyers, we need more women IT people, and we need more women C-suite people, because that's going to make this industry stronger. Not because we get a bunch of women who act just like men, but because we get women who do what women can do best, which is lead, prioritize, set goals, and be pragmatic. Yep, absolutely. Well, Chris, I think you should take this next one, too, and I'll chime in. It's from a listener in Indiana who prefers to remain anonymous. It's been recorded that Sun Country has won the Essential Air Service contract for Eau Claire, Wisconsin, to offer four weekly flights to a mix of Minneapolis, Las Vegas, and Fort Myers. This award to Sun Country required a waiver to fly this EAS service less than the required daily levels. Is this defeating the purpose of the essential air service? It seems like the government is awarding Sun Country a guaranteed contract to fly service similar to what Allegiant has done for years, five from smaller destinations to larger leisure destinations. Sun Country has also started to do this recently in places like Rochester, Minnesota, and Duluth, Minnesota. It seems odd that they will now receive a guaranteed amount of money to do this service at Eau Claire, while other carriers receive no such guarantees but provide the same service all over. Over the country. Also, what connectivity does a flight twice per week from Eau Claire to Las Vegas or Fort Myers provide people from the area who live 90 miles from a large hub at Minneapolis? Sun Country has no interline agreements or co chairs with other carriers in those destinations. Does this set an ugly precedent that airlines will abuse
2: going forward? Fascinating question, Chris. It was, and thank you to Mr. or Ms. Anonymous for sending that in. I agree 110%. I know we have friends at Sun Country, but I think this is complete bullshit. This is not what the EAS program is intended to do. And like the writer says, they're 90 minutes from Minneapolis-St. Paul. I I have to question why Eau Claire is even on the EAS list still, quite frankly. I don't think this is what taxpayer money is supposed to be about and it's not intended to connect a small community to leisure travel like you know going to Las Vegas. I mean I know there's business meetings and conferences in Las Vegas, but EA service to Las Vegas is kind of a 180 from what the program was originally intended to do, which was to connect small communities to the national aviation system. So It's great. Eau Claire citizens have some nice places to fly to a few times a week, I guess. It shouldn't be subsidized. If this is important to them, then the taxpayers vote. Eau Claire could subsidize this in a different kind of a way. But this is not what the Essential Air Service Program is intended to be. And again, they're not uh, really disenfranchised from the national airspace system. They're 90 minutes from a major hub and you know, in bad traffic, people in Washington DC or New York drive ninety minutes to their airport and I'm not sure why the citizens there can't do the same. Sorry to be a negative Nelly here, but when I saw this and then when this question came in, it really kinda caught my eye. You
1: nailed it, Chris. You know, I don't know anyone in the EAS office, but if we can find someone, I'd love to have them come on the show and talk about what the Essential Air Service Program in 2022 and beyond really is and what it should be. I'm not sure how transparent they'd be about that, but I can certainly see a big difference between a smaller place that's an hour to two hour drive from Big Hub versus one that's six hours from Big Hub in terms of who should get federal subsidy.
2: Yeah. I mean, this is the perfect market for scheduled bus service directly to the airport that we're seeing in in other communities. So in any event, sorry to be negative, but this is not what we're supposed to be doing. So, as we used to say, it's Miller time, so let's call it a day. It's not quite the same to say it's IPA time or whatever. So. <laughs> but anyway, before we go, let's get to our shout-outs. I'm giving mine to Alaska Airlines, and it's announced plans for a first-of-its-kind digital bag tag to launch later this year. It will pretty much make the entire check-in process off-airport, so you can check your bags, not physically, but tag them and get your boarding pass while you're at home and it promises to vastly reduce the passenger processing at the airport. Alaska has been a tremendous leader in technology enhancements over the years, and they're proving once again why passengers love to fly them. Let's hope this
1: trend continues too. Great shout out, Chris. My shout out goes to the city of Houston. Houston is a great American city, and I've always felt a little bad for them. After the Continental United merger, when they had this hometown airline in Continental and they picked up and moved to Chicago, and even though it's a big city with two important airports, they haven't had a hometown airline. But now Spirit has announced that they're going to put a pilot base there, bring a lot of new jobs to Houston. Houston has a rich history in aviation. The... 1940 Terminal Museum at Hobby is a fascinating place to go, and I just think it's great that a city that has been so important for aviation is getting some love from the ULCC space now.
2: That's a good one. Carnival Cruise Line loves Houston and Galveston. We're bringing our next liquefied natural gas ship to Galveston next year, so. It's a great market for travel, and uh, this is a, a, a nice uh, thing spirits doing as well.
1: Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.
0: Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.